0: We are in Galatians chapter 6 today, so if you'll look there, we'll be looking at the first 10 verses. By the way, I got an email from Jim Merrick, who organized the trip that Dave is on, and Dave Knapp is on, and they've been in Nepal, they're going to India, he was, Jim was saying he's seeing a Nepalese man uh, every day who is full of questions about Jesus, about the faith, about what it means, and he's close, but hasn't arrived at the point of deciding that Jesus is Lord. But So you can pray for Dave. It's not just training pastors, but engaging with the people that they meet along the way. Uh, some of you remember the name Emmett Smith. I think maybe from Dancing with the Stars instead of from Dancing with the NFL, but he was one of the great running backs of all time, ran for the Dallas Cowboys mostly. He was just five feet, nine inches tall, and weighed 210 pounds. That's pipsqueak size in the National Football League. But he holds one of the most impressive records in pro sports, the career rushing record. In his 15 years in the NFL, he rushed for 18,355 yards. That's almost 10 and a half miles. What's even more impressive is that on his way to the 10 and a half mile mark, some monster kept knocking him down every 4.2 yards on average. Can you imagine getting slammed to the ground every 13 feet for 10 and a half miles? But Emma Smith kept getting up. That's what it takes to win. It takes endurance. And that's what this short sermon series is all about. Today's message is for those of you who've been knocked down and are thinking about just staying there. You've become weary. You don't know that you have what it takes to get up again. Well, that's an experience that others in this room share and have shared. Today, I'm going to encourage you to get back up. If you say, I can't, I'll answer, you can. If you say, why should I, I'll answer, there's more writing on this than you can imagine. If you say, how can I? I'll say, let's look at our text in Galatians chapter 6. It teaches us some things that we need to know about perseverance. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. You can follow along. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens... And in this way, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let's not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. In chapter 6, we begin with a reference to a problem, a person caught in a sin. Paul might be thinking of someone whose sinful behavior has been detected. He's been caught, and the word can be used that way, but he might also have in mind the person who's been caught like a fly in a spider web. He got too close to something harmful, and now he's wrapped up in it, and he doesn't know how to get out. The word that the NIV translates as sin is not the usual Greek word, but one that means something like a false step or a trespass. In other words, this person who's caught fell into something inadvertently. He didn't rush into it on purpose. The wrongdoing may be, as the New Testament scholar Alan Cole argues, false but fascinating teaching that's got hold of a person. Or it may be a behavior or a habit that's ensnared him. Paul says, You who are spiritual, meaning people who live in and keep step with the Spirit, he just spoke about that, whose lives are plainly under the influence of God's Spirit, should restore him. And Paul didn't know anything about NFL rushing records, but he knew that people take missteps and get knocked down. And if they're going to get back up and persevere, they'll need brothers and sisters to help them. The word translated restore is used in the Gospels of the disciples repairing their fishing nets, cleaning them, sewing up the holes so that they would be ready for the next time they went out. If we're going to persevere in our service to Christ, we will need to undergo repairs from time to time. And we're going to have to help each other with that. But do it gently, Paul says, or literally do it with meekness. Destroying people does not require gentleness, but restoring people is delicate work. And only those who are being led by the Spirit should even attempt it. But watch yourself, he warns, or you may also be tempted. He doesn't say exactly what that temptation may be, perhaps to the sin that caught your friend. Wouldn't be the first time somebody got caught in the same sin while they were trying to help someone else. Or perhaps to the sin, which is more destructive still, of pride and spiritual superiority. In verse 1, Paul's instructing the Galatians about what to do when a fellow Christian succumbs to some sort of temptation. In verse 2, he tells them what to do when a fellow Christian is weighed down by a burden. So in verse 1, the Christian's wandered off the path, and he needs someone to help him back on. In verse 2, the Christian's still on the path, but the weight he's carrying threatens to crush him. He can hardly bear up under it. The word translated burdens in verse 2 was sometimes used metaphorically of sorrows or griefs, but here it's probably more general. The burden could be an illness, a financial weight, or a relational difficulty. It could be an addiction, an addiction, or bereavement. The burden is the thing that weighs a person down, that threatens his perseverance in following Christ. Now, it's important to note that Paul does not say that we are to solve one another's problems, but that we're to bear one another's burdens. Solving problems is often going to be beyond our ability, but carrying the burden, offering relief and encouragement, that's something we can do. If you're old enough, and you might not like this, but generally, this first service is a little bit older than the second service. So in this service, you probably have heard the name Sir Edmund Hillary, right? Some of you are processing it. I know that name, but where did I hear that? That also happens when you get older, too. Sir Edmund Hillary was the first man to successfully climb Mount Everest, first man to reach the summit. Have you heard of Tenzig Norgay? He was the Sherpa guide who accompanied him. And on the way back down the mountain, Sir Edmund fell, and Tenzig Norgay rescued him. If he had not been there, Sir Edmund would have died. He pulled him back up the cable. When asked why he never bragged about what he'd done, Norgay answered simply, we mountain climbers help each other. That's what Christ followers do too. Not some heroic thing. We help each other. Now what does this have to do with the subject of the sermon series? Perseverance. In the Christian life, people persevere best when they have others to help and others to help them. Perseverance wanes when we're alone. People who try to live the life without the benefit of a church family often give up and give out. But while we must be quick to carry others' burdens, we must not be quick to fault others for not carrying ours. That happens. Indeed, we have a load that other Christ followers can't carry. When we read this text, it may seem to us that Paul's contradicting himself. People have charged him with that, especially if we read it in the King James Version, which translates, bear one another's burdens in verse 2, but each man shall bear his own burden in verse 5. Sounds like Paul's saying just the opposite. But the burdens of verse 2 and the burdens of burden of verse 5 are different types of burdens. In fact, Paul even uses different words in the original language to represent them. I believe the word in verse 2 refers to a heavy burden that comes to a Christ follower for a time illness, financial aid, I just mentioned some, relational difficulty, addiction, bereavement, and can cause him or her to give out. We need to help each other carry those burdens, but the burden or load, as NIV translates it, of verse 5 refers to the specific life work given to each of us by the Lord, and for which we'll be held accountable. It's the same word Jesus used when he said, for my burden is easy, and my yoke is light. I can share your temporary burden and you can share mine, but we can't be responsible for the life work God has entrusted to someone else. Only Jesus has the power to share that with us. And sometimes people get this wrong. They try to shovel the responsibility God gave them off on others, and they start comparing themselves. They think of all the times that they helped others, but they can't remember times when anyone helped them. They pride themselves on what they've done for others, but they anger themselves. Over what others have not done for them. That kind of thinking is the death knell of perseverance. If you're engaging in it, I plead with you to stop. If you say, but it's not fair, I can only say, fair or not, you're poisoning your own spirit with those thoughts. Please stop. Now look at verse 7 do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Now, Paul switched metaphors on us, which he does from time to time. He's actually very good at it. He's gone from carrying loads to sowing seeds, from um, burden bearing to seed sowing. Both kinds of work require perseverance. And when it comes to seed sowing, it can take a long time before one sees any results. We were in California early this year, and or in the summertime, and we marveled at the miles and miles of vineyards we drove by, just miles as far as the eye could see. I understand that working a vineyard requires great perseverance. At the beginning of the first growing season, a vinner will plant vine shoots, and at the end of that first season, he'll cut them back. And then a second year passes, and he cuts them back again. And then a third year passes before he has any usable grapes. But usually, he'll leave those clusters on the vine, For most vendors, it'll be four years before they bring in their first harvest. If they're growing grapes for winemaking, it takes even longer. Those vendors won't see the fruit of their labor for seven or eight years. In fact, in Napa Valley, most vineyards don't reach the break-even point for their investment until at least 15 years have gone by. There's always a lag time between planting and harvesting, both in the agricultural world and in the spiritual world. It's a principle in both realms. We live off last season's fruit. Your life is what it is because of seeds you planted months ago, and in many cases, years ago. Paul points out another principle here, an inviolable one. A man reaps what he sows. Now, nobody questions that in agriculture. If I plant a rutabaga, I'm not gonna harvest potatoes. It would be crazy to think so. But somehow, people think they can plant seeds of self-promotion, greed, sexual immorality, and still harvest love, joy, and peace. That's just as crazy. In the little garden that Karen and I plant, we put in a variety of vegetables. We have potatoes and beans and tomatoes and squash and cucumbers and sometimes peas and carrots and onions. And I don't always remember exactly where I've planted what. But when the plants begin to grow, I can usually figure it out. And sometimes even then, I can't tell the grape tomato plant from the Rutgers or the yellow squash from the zucchini. Probably you could, but I can't. But it becomes clear when the fruit begins to form. When it comes to what kind of seed has been planted, I can't be mocked. And when it comes to the spiritual crop you've planted, God cannot be mocked. The etymology of that word is to turn up one's nose. It's very picturesque. What we've planted will grow, whether we planted it in secret or in public, whether we were careful about the seed we were sowing or were careless, whether or not we now wish the plants would come up, what we plant grows. When preachers talk about sowing seed, they're usually thinking about evangelism, about spreading the gospel through the witness of word and deed. But Paul has a different aspect of sowing in mind. The harvest that Paul has in mind is reaped in your own life. You become the kind of person you've prepared yourself to be by the seed you've sown. As John Stott remarked, it's not the reapers who decide what the harvest is going to be, but the sowers. And we're the sowers. You can, verse 8, sow to, and that is with a view to, the sinful nature, literally the flesh, or with a view to the Spirit. The translation sinful nature, I think, can be misleading. The flesh, that's what the word that Paul uses and uses routinely to describe this, the flesh is not sinful in itself or evil. It's a, that's an important thing to understand. God created us in such a way that our flesh, that is the powers resident in the physical body, were to be governed by the spirit. There's an order in creation and with human beings that cannot be altered without serious consequences. When that order is messed up, for example, when the flesh operates without regard to the spirit... Without heed to the Spirit, ungoverned by the Spirit, which is the disaster that happened when humans turned away from God. People find themselves stuck in all kinds of ruinous patterns. The flesh simply can't rule itself without disaster. It's meant to be ruled by the Spirit. To sow to the flesh is to invest in life apart from God and without reference to your own Spirit. That kind of life is defined by its natural appetites and sensations and is subject to, Paul says, verse 8, destruction, or better, to corruption or disillusion. It's a life that falls apart. The perfect biblical example of someone who sows to the flesh is the rich farmer in Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 12. He says, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, it is very important to understand there's nothing wrong with eating, drinking, and being merry. In fact, it's a good thing. When I first read that scripture, I thought it must be bad. It just must, God must not like it for people to be merry. You better not be merry or God's not going to be happy with you. That's not the point at all. The problem was that the farmer lived without reference to God or even to his own spirit. He violated his own nature, violated the way he was made to run by limiting his life to natural appetites and sensations as if that's all there was. Paul knows where that kind of life leads, to destruction. And not because it's so evil but because it's so weak. The flesh can't survive without spirit. Its powers fail. It falls apart. And those who invest only in it fall apart too. Now, there's another way to live. In reference to the spiritual, to God himself and to our own human spirits. We can sow, that is, we can invest in the spirit the NIV capitalizes spirit. You have to realize in the Greek text there, are, there, there aren't capital letters. So when it comes to words that can refer to God's spirit or our spirit, for example, it's hard to tell sometimes. And the NIV chose to capitalize spirit as though it refers to the Holy Spirit. But I rather doubt that's what Paul had in mind. We can sow with a view to our spirit or to our flesh, we can sow with a view to our spirit so that it grows and flowers and produces fruit. How do you do that? How do you sow to the Spirit? What does that entail? Let me mention just a few things, and I'm not trying to be exhaustive at all. There's many, many more. But first, we can invest in sound biblical teaching. See, that's the point of verse 6, where the idea is that we should financially support true teachers of the Word. We can practice spiritual disciplines, actions that prepare the Spirit, like prayer, Bible reading, worship, fasting, solitude, and there are many others that prepare us, that sow to the spirit. These are actions we take in the present to prepare us spiritually for the future. We practice these actions in order to form, and these are Oswald Chambers' words, habits, to form habits on the basis of the grace of God. He goes on to say, if we refuse to practice, it's very insightful. If we refuse to practice, it's not God's grace that fails when a crisis comes, but our own nature. When the crisis comes, we ask God to help us, but he can't if we've not made our nature our ally. And we make our nature our ally by sowing to the Spirit. In verse 10, we see another way to sow to the Spirit. We can use every opportunity to do good to everyone. Doing good here is intentional. In the language of spiritual formation, we're engaging in the discipline of service. When we do good for others, in fact, every time we do good for others, we're changed. Every good thought indeed toward another person is another seed planted, and it will bear fruit. Let me tell you what happens when a person sows to the Spirit consistently over a lifetime. He or she becomes, as the years go by, increasingly full of love. What a beautiful thing that is. He or she becomes increasingly joyful. The problems of life, even the imminence of death, cannot rob his or her joy. That person increasingly lives a life of peace. The events on the surface of life may be rough, but below the surface there's peace that remains undisturbed. That person is experiencing the eternal kind of life even now. It's a beautiful thing. I've seen it. Usually in men and women who've been sowing to the Spirit for many years. Some of the most beautiful people I've ever seen, these are the words of the philosopher Dallas Willard, Some of the most beautiful people I've ever seen are elderly people whose souls shine so brightly that their bodies are hardly visible. He goes on to mention some: Malcolm Muggeridge, Dorothy Day, Agnes Sanford, and I would list names he didn't know. Ken West, and William Mack, and Dallas Willard himself. See, the wise man... And the book of Proverbs knew how this works. He said, the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But here's the thing. It takes time to reap the harvest when we sow to the Spirit. You're reaping some of it now. So am I, and I'm enjoying it immensely. But there's much more to come that I've yet tasted. People who sow to the flesh see their path grow darker and darker as they go through life. Their returns diminish. They know that death will end all light for them, but not so the people who sow to the spirit. The last day on earth for them merely opens the door to the glories of heaven. But because it takes time, it's possible to grow weary. Seeds sown to the flesh grow faster. But die sooner. Seeds sown to the Spirit grow slowly, but last forever. But because we don't see changes in a day or in a month or sometimes in a year, we can become weary. Verse 9, we can become weary and give up. We give up doing good for others and we focus on ourselves, that is, on our flesh. I say we become weary, but let me speak more plainly. I can become weary. And at times I have been very weary. And become all self-focused. That is, I've sown to the flesh. I need you to encourage me to keep going. I need you to help carry my burdens, and you need me. We need one another. The only way we'll fail, see, God has set this up, that the only way we'll fail is if we fail to persevere. We will reap a harvest, verse 9 says, if we don't give up. And what a harvest. Some people have learned how to sow to the Spirit and are competent at it, like a good farmer. When I moved here, it was the first time I realized there are good farmers and there are bad farmers. And farmers know which is which. They know who's a good farmer. They know who's not. Some people don't understand how to sow to the Spirit very well, and they're really incompetent at it, like a poor farmer. But whether one is good at it or not, everyone who sows to the Spirit will reap a harvest unless he gives up. So don't give up. And know this, the smallest seed you can sow is a thought. But you sow so many of them that they are phenomenally important to the harvest. So mind your thoughts don't plant thoughts of discontent, of foolish comparisons, of resentment or envy. Instead, turn your thoughts to whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything's excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. It is possible to do this. Let me close with a story from a pastor, Dale Dury, that illustrates the harvest that comes to people who persevere in sowing to the Spirit. One autumn afternoon, Durie's grandparents were at home when they heard a knock at the door. It was a neighbor, a widow, who said to Dury's grandfather, I was out feeding the horses, and I just felt like God was prompting me to come and say thank you for the difference that you've made in my life. So she sat down at the table, and she began relating one story after another of how Grandfather Drury had helped her, how he would cared for the cows and horses and done all kinds of practical things around the farm. She went through a litany of good do- deeds, including the help he gave her in making peace with some of her children. And she thanked him for being so real. And she finished, she said, I just felt like God wanted me to tell you that. Dury's grandfather looked at her and said, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who did it. And there was just a pause for a moment, and then Dewey's grandmother began chatting with the neighbor. A few seconds later, they heard a cough, and they turned to see Grandfather slumped over. His last words on earth were, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who did it. That was a man whose path was shining ever brighter until he reached the full light of day. He didn't grow weary in doing good, and he reaped a harvest. That's what I want for my life. But I need your help. When I grow weary, come and help me. And when you grow weary, I'll come and help you. And when it's over, we won't say, see what I did? We'll say, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who did it. Now let's pray. God, some of your people in this place are carrying heavy burdens. Heavier than I've ever had to carry. And some of them are carrying them all by themselves. And they're getting weighed down. So I pray, Lord, you'll send help from Zion. That you'll send help from Lockwood. Lord, open your children's hearts to receive help and to give it. And grant us the spiritual insight to see that it's Jesus all along. Keep us going, Lord, please. In Jesus' name, amen.